This is part B of our interview with Jeremy Bettle. If you've not yet listened to part A, stop right now and jump into part A. So talk to talk to us about you know, your expertise is around building physical, um, physically strong, powerful bodies and people. How much of it was between the ears of the athletes that you mm-hmm. were working with, and how much did you have to do with that? Or, you know, when it came to the psychology of performance, was there somebody else yeah. to do that role? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, guys, at the top level, it's such a huge part of sport. You know, when, when you look at um, the physical attributes of elite athletes, there's very little difference physically between a sub-elite and an elite performer. You know, my, my kids at Santa Barbara were as athletic, as fast, often as tall or taller than the NBA guys. Mm. Um, and so you've got to look at what are those next level of, of differentiators for an athlete. Now, in many cases, it's the, the cognitive processes that surround physical performance. So your ability to see an action and respond to it. Uh, with another, with your own physical action. So the faster you can recognize a pattern and the faster you can implement your own strategy around that, the quicker you can make the correct decision. And so that's a huge mental component to the game is just being able to think faster than your opponents. And that's what separates truly elite from sub-elite, you know, over and above any physical characteristics. So there has to be a threshold of physicality. You can't be five nine and you know jump like I do and be in the NBA. You got to be tall enough. You got to jump high enough. Be talented enough. But then the next step is the mental aspect of the game. So decision making is one, and that's more in my realm. Yeah. Um, the other side of it is the psychology, and as a strength coach you're very much um, sort of the frontline psychologist. The guys will come in the weight room and and they'll want to talk to you about all sorts of stuff, whether it's their family, whether it's, um, you know, what's going on in their their everyday life, their their troubles they're having around not being selected or, you know, dropping in minutes or something like that. Or maybe they've got contract uh, issues and they don't have a new contract for next year. So you're very much the psychologist on that front. But it also becomes very important to know when you're out of your depth. You know, so when do you need to send them off to that performance psychologist or, or clinical psychologist to start discussing some of these uh, these issues they'll bring to you? So it's sort of a hybrid of the two. You've always got to have uh, psychology available as a separate entity, but you've also got to be savvy enough and a good enough listener to be able to take on some of that yourself. So physical conditioning is something that's been around for quite a while and you're obviously refining the art at the, at the top level. But the, mm-hmm. mental, the understanding of the mental side of things is a little bit newer. What are the sorts of yeah. things that you're doing with elite athletes to help them improve things like decision-making? Yeah, um, a lot of it comes down to exposure to the game. You know, it, it's... Um, your, your brain builds up these complex schema where you, you recognize patterns coming at you. That's, our brain is just designed to recognize patterns. And 
if you can study these these patterns, maybe it's a basketball team coming up the court, maybe it's a hockey team coming up the ice, and you've had exposure to that scenario before, you'll be in a better place to anticipate how that's going to end. So basically, like that's why your veteran players are so good and they don't have to move as much. Because they, when you're young, you sort of chase the ball around the park. The older you get, you, you get develop an expertise where you'll see the coach call their play. You've watched so much film on their team and those players that you know who's going to end up with the ball. So that's your guy. You just go and stand where he's going to go and get it. So you walk over. Instead of chasing him around the court, you just walk to where he's going to get the ball. And then you guard him. And you know, then on a, a zoomed-in level, you know exactly what he's going to do when he gets the ball. So now you, you don't have to be as athletic because you build up this capacity to anticipate. So when you're about 50% sure of what's going to happen, and this is if you look at uh, tennis serves, for example, when you're 50% sure where the ball is going to go, you start moving in that direction. So now you can execute your shot with perfect technique as opposed to waiting for it to come off the racket, chasing it down and, and sort of lunging for it. And you've got no idea then where it's going to go. You're just hoping it lands back in the court. So it's really about watching film. Now, we actually started using um, in Toronto virtual reality for that, where we would actually start having injured guys watching uh, practice, watching games, uh, where they can really get into, you know, immersed into the environment where they can start studying, um, studying opposition and studying games. Do you have any data on how successful that's been thus far? The technology is just catching up to where we can really measure that stuff now. Um, so it's it's not the the hard data. It's just the you put this in as a part of a guy's program and you watch him develop over a number of years, and he gets better. You know, yeah. did you did you have a small part in that? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe he's just really good. Yeah. You say yes, you did. Um, and <laughs> so you come out of the NBA and then you find yourself as head of uh, head of performance for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And so you've, mm-hmm. you've gone from this individual contributor and an you know, amazing contributor with, with the Nets to running the program at uh, – in Canada, in Toronto, for the Maple Leafs. How did that come to pass? Yeah, um, so I was good friends with the performance director for the Raptors. Uh, So MLSE actually own the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Raptors, and uh, Toronto FC uh, in the MLS. And so through developing a relationship with him, the Maple Leafs were going through a major transition in management and they, they'd torn the whole thing down. Um, and so they started uh, looking over at the Raptors and what they were doing on a health and performance side, and they wanted to replicate that. So they used Alex as a um, referral source. You know, who did he know who could come in and put something like that in place for them? And, you know, fortunately, I was one of uh, five candidates for that role that he put forward. And um, did quite well in the interview and, and was fortunate enough to get the job. You walk in there. Did you have a vision of what you wanted to create? Yeah. So 
over the course of my career, you know, through the, I've not had a very traditional career path. I've jumped around. I've gone into different fields. I've, um, I've tried to look at everything that impacts the human systems and, and expand it as much as I can. And whenever I've run into something I've not been able to impact, I've looked at how we can impact it and thought, oh, that, that'd be useful to add in here. So slowly over my career, I've sort of built this model uh, of high performance in my mind and, and put it on paper and thought through every process and really documented it quite carefully. So I had an overarching vision of what I wanted to put in place when I got the opportunity to oversee a whole program. And so I think that's probably what, what sold them is that I had a very detailed plan um, on how I was going to manage and, and put this in place and not, not so much go in as a practitioner, but actually lead a department. And, and I, I had familiarity in every field having jumped around in my career so much. And how was the pressure different from the NBA to, to the Maple Leafs? Like, the sport in Canada. Uh, yeah. You know, how different was it? You're the man. When, when the guys are injured and not on the ice, mm-hmm. they're knocking on your door. What was it like? Yeah. Um, you know, coming from... The NBA and, and in New York, it's probably the biggest sporting market in the world. And so I became accustomed to having articles written in the press um, about me. You know, if somebody gained a couple pounds, my name would come up. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> whole articles about, about it. And you just, when it first happens, it's devastating to you. And you just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And it's, it's some local blog site, you know, it's not like it was in the, you know, the New York post or anything. Um, so I'd grown sort of accustomed to being in a high pressure environment, but really had no idea how big the Maple Leafs really were. You know, you know who they are. You, they're a marquee franchise in the world, right? They're the 17th richest sports franchise in, on the planet. Um, and so you go into this this uh, it's you can't even describe it it's they call it the center of the hockey universe you could be having a conversation and and mention the coach's name and be wearing a maple leafs logo and people will stop and and listen to your conversation like and you just walk in the dog with your wife you know at lunchtime you know it it's the, the interest in the team and the passion for the team is like nothing i'll ever experience again i'm sure like it was um it was absolutely fantastic but the club did a really good job when they changed management of almost eliminating that outside pressure you know they they created such a tight bubble around the team where the only people who were allowed to speak to the media were the the head coach the general manager and the president um the players would obviously be interviewed as well but it really shielded us and let us just be free to do our jobs. Uh, and they, they supported us so much that we, we didn't feel a lot of that within the facility and within the team. Um, and I know that wasn't always the case with the club. And it was something that was a very deliberate plan um, put in place by the new management. You know, they, they were absolutely fantastic. 
And when you think about the athletes that you're working with in ice hockey, how how is that animal different to the, the animal <laughs> that you were trying to create at, at the NBA in terms of strength, <coughs> physicality, speed? Like, it, it, Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting going from a sport that's almost entirely vertical. You know, you've got these huge vertical jumps, you know, big, big athletes to a sport that has absolutely no vertical component whatsoever. Like any movement you make that goes up is a complete waste of energy because you have to be able to glide on the ice, right? So everything's horizontal and further, everything's lateral. So that's similar to basketball because there's a ton of lateral movement in basketball. So I've developed quite a lot of expertise in, in developing lateral movement in basketball. Um, the other thing is there's no particular God-given anthropometric measurement that makes you a hockey player. Right. You know, there are five foot nine hockey players. Um, there and are six foot seven too. hockey players. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> right. Can you skate? Very badly. Okay. I used to think I was quite good, and then I started watching these guys. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it was actually quite comical. Our uh, skating coach, who was a former um, – she was an Olympic gold w- uh, medal winner in figure skating. And uh, she was like, come out. I'll, uh, I'll give you some lessons. I'm like, well, I, I can't skate. She said, no, 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 come on, come on. So I, I sort of wobble out there and skate across and crash into the boards because I don't know how to stop. And she's like, oh – <laughs> oh, that kind of can't skate. Like normally, the coach will be like, "Work with this guy. He can't skate. Well, he's an NHL player. He can skate." But it's it's minor refinements, right? But it was not for me. So uh, yeah, she's like, "Yeah, I don't know what to do with you." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get no, you're that right. frame thing yeah. out on the ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cannot... No, I actually did need one. You know, it was uh, yeah. So I, I turned around and went back, Got and off. that was the last time I tried that. Right, so. right, right, right. So there's no blueprint for a hockey player physically wise like it yeah, yeah. And, and so that that really translates into the training then mm. so so what defines you if if it's not being seven feet tall um often it, it comes down to and it especially in hockey it's this work ethic and this grind mentality that they have where to work on things like power you actually it's very hard to back them off they are such hard workers um, and, and the demographics of the sport, it's a very expensive sport to play. And so, you know, why, you've got why people. So, why is it so expensive? Well, if you look at like the equipment, the skates could be up to a thousand dollars. A set of goalie pads could be $30,000. And so like Whoa. people are paying 30 to $50 for their kids to pay, to play hockey in a year. Wow. And so these aren't like underprivileged inner city uh, kids playing this sport. This, this is a very affluent sport. Mm. Um, and so the people, you, you're having different conversations with the guys. They have a different drive, a different work ethic as it pertains to the weight room. The, the NBA guys, they work their asses off, but it wasn't intuitive to them to be in the weight room because – I'm seven feet tall. I've got a 40 inch vertical. And now you want me to do squats. Like, why would I do that? They're, 
they're incredibly hard when you're seven feet tall, you know. And so there was a lot of negotiation and education there. Whereas you walk into the hockey room and you're used to all this negotiation, and you're like, okay, guys, we're gonna we can do some lower body, and we might start here. And they're like, okay, before you finish, they're already doing it. Yeah, you know. And so it's it's much less negotiation. It's much more intuitive to them to to be in the weight room to work to be really uncomfortable and um, and really work to the point of exhaustion. So that was a, a, a stark difference, just how easy it was to implement the system with hockey players because they, they were just ultra compliant with, um, with what you needed them to do. Yeah. Um, the nights are long and the days are short in Toronto and, uh, you know, Michelle drove across the country, celebrated her birthday on her own, three dogs, ate that dreadful, you know, fish thing that you said uh, a little earlier. Yeah. But she struggled in the in the dark of Toronto, didn't yeah. she? And you, you needed to make a move. Yeah, it was um, – we loved Canada. And the winter was um, – there was this really interesting sort of sense of community around surviving the Canadian winter. Is that what you feel? Like we just got to survive oh, this thing? Yeah, I mean it's – you know, it's, it's, a, it's not quite that bad. It, you know, not living out on the wastelands and, <laughs> you know, scrounging for food. But there, there's just this sense of like you've got three feet of snow. It's minus 40. Um, it's light at 10 in the morning. It's dark at um, three in the afternoon. And there's just this sense of everybody's just like, oh, God, this is just brutal. But but everyone's in it, yeah. you know, and everybody's sort of grinding through it. Um, so we, we love that about the place. But that move from New York to Toronto, the winter seemed to be two months longer. You know, it's still winter in May. Uh, it's just awful. Um, and then the days are two hours shorter. And so really quickly, Michelle started getting a affected by um, seasonal affective disorder. So it's this deep depression brought around by the absence of sunlight. Um, and it gets sort of progressively worse. So the first winter was bad. Second winter was just like scary, deep depression. And by the, well, by the time we sort of learned how to deal with some of it, we sort of, um, she was getting out to Florida a little bit in the, the winter and getting some sunshine, but it was getting to the point where it wasn't fair for me to keep her in that environment, you know, and, and have her be struggling so much um, because we would get quite a lot of exposure to the light. You know, we, we would fly for one cause it's also very gray and overcast. Yeah. So we'd fly three times a week. So we'd be above the clouds looking at the sun uh, or we'd be down in Florida, we'd be in Miami for the weekend, and Michelle's in a blizzard shoveling the bloody driveway so she can leave. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. so uh, careful of the, the photos you post on Instagram that weekend. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah. <You> <laughs> Nothing by in. the poolside. No. Right? All right. Um, so, yeah, that was, that, was, um, that was a struggle for her. So you found a way to move. Yeah. To the mighty ducks, exactly. Yeah. Um, again, just I had I had a conversation with an NBA team about uh, moving to a sunnier location, and 
I'd explained the situation we were in personally to our general manager at the time. Um, and, and he had sort of said, well, you know, they, these guys have, uh, this possibility they might be looking, um, you know, would you like me to arrange a conversation, you know, just so you can hear them out. They can understand what you do. And, um, you know, the, the system you've put in here. And I, I said, well, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. And so we, we started that conversation with, uh, with Anaheim uh, in beautiful Orange County. Mm. Here you are. Yeah. And when you think about the cultures of the, the two different franchises, how different are they? It's, um, it's amazing, you know, when, when you're with the Leafs um, and it's the centre of the hockey universe. And, and so there are Canadian people everywhere that the Maple Leafs go. Yeah. You know, every arena is full. Um, but then you come to a, a smaller hockey market, you know, where we're also in, com- in competition uh, with the Lakers and, you know, we, we've got uh, so much in the Clippers and, and the, there's several football teams here. Um, there's so much to do in L.A. The, the size of the club feels a lot different. Um, now, our, our ownership are absolutely wonderful. You know, they throughout this pandemic, they've just been tremendous. They kept on all of all the arena workers. They paid them a full salary as though they were they were working the shows and the 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 games and stuff like that. So it, it's a it's a family club. You know, it's a much nice. smaller club. Yep. It's a much yep. more family feel. Like um, Henry and Susan Samueli own it. Like it, it's literally a, a family business. Right. Um, and, and it's yeah. So it's um, it's been a really interesting transition from a big corporate massive market um, into a smaller sort of family-owned business. Um, so yeah, just different culture, different exposure, different pressures. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you've still got the same, the players are still as driven, you know, none of that changes. None of the, none of the inner workings of the club are any, are any different, you know, that there's probably a few less resources than Toronto had, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a much smaller feel to it. Yeah. Cool. Hey, we're just about out of time. I've got a, a few questions, uh, that, pertain to a couple of old guys and how do you make absolute beasts out of the old blokes but weaponize them weaponize them that's the word weaponize right but um before we get to that when you think about what you've done over your career you've worked with amazing some amazing teams amazing athletes and you know you you're at the height of your powers what's on your to-do list of you know what's next Mm. for jeremy question um you know i as you're coming up, you're, you're super competitive. You're wanting to prove yourself. You, you feel like you want to, you want to be the absolute best in the world and you want to get to the top and work at the top. Um, and then after spending a decent amount of time there, I think you've got in your mind, there's less to prove, you know, you, you sort of bother less about what people think, think of you and do you have a cool job? Um, I think the focus now is moving more to time with Michelle, you know, cause the sacrifices she's made, 
for me to be a part of an 82 game schedule for 10 years. Um, she does everything that isn't my job. Absolutely everything. And every couple of years, just as she starts making friends, I make her pack up the house and move somewhere else that she doesn't have friends. Yeah, that's hard. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's been brutal on her. Um, and so more family time. Um, still love the idea of being in professional sport, but, you know, like moving it more into management, moving into a, a schedule. You know, one of the dreams would be to go home and work for a big football club. Um, that'd be super exciting. But uh, yeah, I think I think more more time at home, more family, you know, get a little more grounded and have less to do and less to prove. Like it. Um, what is on the horizon in terms of what's cutting edge at the moment in your field that you're looking at thinking, right, that's, that's going to make a difference to what athletes mm-hmm. do in the future? Yeah, I think, well, there's a, there's a couple of things, you know, innovation's really good when you're doing the basics really well. And I still think that we have a long way to go on doing the basics, executing the basics every day at an elite level. And along with that, it's integrating this as a whole system. I think on a franchise level, that's the next thing in American pro sport of how do we do a better job of integrating strength, conditioning, medical nutrition, and into coaching and management and make that one system um, all working along the same spectrum, as opposed to a sort of siloed approach where you've got sort of your strength coach, your medical over here, your coach is doing that thing yep. over here and everyone's sort of separate. Yeah. One um, system. Yeah, exactly. So mm. that's that's an evolution on a uh, an organizational level. And then as we start getting more into that, there's so much data in sport now. Um, artificial intelligence is going to be huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. It's going to transform these monster data sets and give us insight that we've not been able to gain before. And that's already starting with some unbelievable companies. P3. I've got a huge um, system going. Um, there's a number of, of other uh, companies who are really getting some, some smart stuff going on there. Yeah. Um, personally, I'm pretty passionate about the virtual reality stuff from a cognitive performance mm. standpoint. Um, I think that that's going to be a really, really key area, uh, cognitive development um, and assessment of how do we zero in on what is, what is going to make a future superstar you know because it's not physical um and so how do we measure the the cognitive capacity of a player i think that's going to be be huge and then uh lastly you know for me areas of nutrition like the microbiome um gut health and the gut brain connection things like that i think uh huge areas for athletes um and a, a huge future area for for nutrition probably leads us to our where we really want to get this um to is how do you help weaponize these two old guys over here because we see exercise is kind of easy you sort of know you need to do it you can go to a gym you can work out at 80 percent or 100 percent or whatever that's all fine it's the decisions you make afterwards 
So I guess the first mm-hmm. question is just how important is nutrition and why do we keep stuffing it up? Um, I always describe it as, you know, people say, is it 50% training and 50% nutrition? I, I think it's a hundred percent of both. Um, it, it's so critically important. Like if you think about the fact that you change over your, every cell in your body about every two years. So in two years time, right. you will be an entirely new human being. The only thing coming with you is your memories. Right. I'm, I've left half of those <laughs> behind as well. Yeah. Well, exactly. Most of mine are gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, still on the rugby field somewhere. <laughs> um, and so you're going to build those cells out of what you put in your body. So that's where two years of really good eating and you, you start seeing this transformation in your body where it, it sort of becomes easier to maintain your fitness, to maintain your health. You get sick less. And so that for me is critical. It's, it's literally what we are building your body out of. We're, we're building new human beings with every meal that we put in, in our bodies. So it's the foundation of absolutely all of your gains. And, and I don't think I'm, I'm overstating the importance of it there. Yeah. Um, that, is a, that is an amazing way to look at it. And I'm looking at Nick now thinking he looks a lot like a chip. The, the volume of potato chips he's eaten over the last couple of years, unbelievable. Thank God for COVID, I said no more chips. Uh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that, that is an amazing way to look at it. I went vegan, uh, I think, three years ago. What's your mm-hmm. take on plant-based diets? That's why you look like a piece of broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you've got to be really smart about how you approach your nutrition regardless. Now, my diet is probably plant majority plant-based. Um, lots of lots of vegetables, lots of plant-based foods, um, and some meat. Um, what I don't like about the vegan diet is we can start moving from healthy whole foods into a bunch of chemically processed crap that is somehow being branded as a healthy food because it isn't a steak. Um, so I, I think we've got to be really, really careful on the quality of the food we're taking in if we're making that transition. Um, and we've also got to make sure that we don't make a transition from a balanced diet to carbohydrates. You know, people will just t- start replacing that meat with pasta. Um, and so we, we've got to really make sure that we're getting high quality sources of, uh, of protein. And, and the problem is like, a lot of the soy in the world now is heavily treated with, uh, with Roundup. And so you've got this glyphosate treating all of your food. It's water-soluble. It integrates into the bean. So if you're not having organic um, soy products, whether it's tofu or, or any of the other stuff that they're making, you can be taking in a ton of these pesticides and you know, really doing some damage to your gut health. So I'm all for it. So long as you're, you're getting enough protein and you're actually moving in a direction that's, that is genuinely making you healthier, not just falling for the marketing, you know, where they're, they're calling almond milk a healthy alternative. Well, based on what? It's got nine almonds in it and it's a <laughs> bottle of water. Essentially. That's exactly right. Well, <laughs> in fact, the almond milk we drink, 3% almonds. 
go. They milked them until there was nothing oh, left the in those poor little them. almonds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you, and then you've got to think of the cruelty of how you even milk in the almonds. You know, <laughs> it does feel like there's this battle, though, isn't it, between the human body and marketing? Yeah. 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 And it's and, just and so tough. Even different every, answer, everything you, yeah, exactly. And everything you've just said, all right, go plant-based, and you suddenly have to think, oh, shit, actually, if it's got a barcode on it, it's probably not going to be quite as good for me as the um, the thing that yeah. grows from the ground, and it, it gets very complicated quite quickly. Yeah, or, it does. When you've got a recipe list as long as your arm, you know, and you can't pronounce half of what's on it, but thank God there's no meat in it. You know, it's like, well... <laughs> And, and there's different moral and ethical reasons for doing it, of course, and I understand all of those. But purely from a, a health perspective, you know, we're, we're starting to move away from some of the the narratives around cholesterol and, and things like that, um, you know, where, where we're not as, as concerned uh, as we perhaps once were. And, and to your earlier question, I think that's where a lot of uh, stuffing it up comes from, is that we keep changing the story. Mm. You know, one minute you can eat eggs, yeah. the next minute you can't. Yeah. And now we're back. We can eat eggs again. One minute steak's bad, then it's good. And this group of people say it's good. And this group of people say it's bad. And so trying to decipher what is actually effective, you know, is, is often a very personal and an individualized process. You know, it, it's not going to be this one size fits all. You should be keto and you should be vegan. Yeah. You know, it, it's got to be very... Um, very much individualized on what works for you, how you feel, you know, and what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah. So I guess to round off the end of the interview and this whole weaponizing of Nick and Blake, it's, uh, we've got, and we talked before the interview about, you know, the Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, all these much, much older than historically, you know, older athletes, not just, not just um, in sport, but continuing to dominate. What is it about, is it the this those freaks athletes are all coming out at this point in time, which seems a little less likely than people like mm-hmm. you are actually able to get the best out of people. Then you have the experienced brains in athletes' bodies that are still you know very competitive. What is it, mm-hmm. and what can the average punter do? Because you know we can go and do a ton of exercise, but as soon as we get injured, you know getting back on the park is is half the challenge as well. What advice have you got for yeah. people like us? Yeah, so. With the elite performers, like guys like Brady and um, like guys from my career, like Kevin Garnett, you know, who's played 22 years in the NBA, you know, they, these are, first of all, they have to be supremely gifted athletes, you know, and genetically very well disposed to, to their sport and to be resilient. Um, you, you, there's all sorts of factors, like look at Roger Federer's style of play, you know, really have a look at, at how Brady plays the game of football. First of all, he's got a monster offensive line in front of him, so he doesn't get hit as much. But he's so good cognitively, he's so quick that he doesn't get hit because he can. He gets rid of the ball. He knows where, where people are coming from. Federer can stand in the middle of the court and play people, you know, basically standing still while they run around. So they're so gifted in their sport that I think they've probably figured out some ways to avoid the wear and tear. You know, if you look at how Nadal plays versus how Federer plays, you know, two very different styles. One guy's going to grind you down and run all over the court. And then as as we've moved along, guys like myself and, and teams of support staff have come along with more and more and more knowledge about how to take care of the body through their nutrition, their weightlifting, uh, through their rehabilitation, preventative 
uh, work, more analytics, you know, and, and so that combination I think is really helping these athletes stay productive for longer and longer. Great. Okay. Well, Jeremy, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Nick and I have got to go off and uh, weaponize ourselves. Mate, thank you so much for uh, spending so much time with us to share us your story. It is super inspiring. Young guy, grew up in England. To go on and, and have the career that you've had, it is, um, it's super inspiring. Thanks, mate. Appreciate your time. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeremy. So there was Jez Blake. What a great guy. Who'd have thought an Englishman would be living in Orange uh, in what was once a gated community, (laughs) teaching big American athletes how to be the best that they can be. Yeah, quite incredible. And what really resonated with me, and I'd never thought about myself and my body in this way, is Mm. that Every two years, all your cells in your body get replaced. Was it, isn't that incredible? It is. I'd never. I didn't even. I did not know that. He said, "All, all you, all you left with are your memories, and all you can remember is eating sixty chocolate eggs in the last four days." Yeah, that's that's not boding well for those new cells, is it? No, they'll be very um, delicious in structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think the approach that he's got to it all, and he came on the scene when. It just sports science just wasn't up to up to the same level that it is right now. Mm. Um, how we had that lab of effectively five hundred yeah. people to determine, well, this works for some people, this works for other people. Why is everyone doing the same lifting regime? And it makes perfect sense now, but he was at the forefront of that, which yeah. is it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The other thing is, he's just such a great guy. And I, you know, he was reflecting on his childhood and how his stepfather entered his life and uh, I think has really shaped the person that he is yeah. today. Um, the sacrifice that his wife has made to help him with his career. The, yeah. The birthday she had in the car, <laughs> dr- driving across the country. Go on now. Yeah. I, I'm – yeah, I'm quite amazed by his story and I like that he's already already thinking – he's always thinking ahead um, – but using virtual reality for cognitive development, you could just can't imagine how, how important that's going to be. And the other thing I was really intrigued by, you said that there's very little difference between elite and sub-elite sub athletes. Yeah. It's, it's all in the head. Yeah. person's ability to recognise patterns, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, what was that about the patterns? Well, you can go back and listen to it again, Blake, <laughs> if you'd really like. But, <laughs> but what he said, if the older players are able to recognise patterns because they've seen it a thousand yeah. times before. Yeah. So whether it's any sport um, or activity, that's why wiser, older heads mm. got to transplant them onto younger bodies and all of a sudden you've got the, the, uh, the best athlete going around. But uh, look, very fascinating. It's a topic that's dear to our hearts yeah. given that we care a lot about our health and well-being in general. And hopefully you out there, the Zoolanders, got a lot out of, out of this episode just yeah. like we did. Yeah. What do you say? 100% nutrition? And 100% exercise. Yeah. It's not a split. No. Focus on it all and you'll get the results. Mm. Love it. Well, 
Is there a special part C? There is a special part C. If you can find it, it's hidden out there somewhere. And it's some really specific advice for Masters athletes. What is a Masters athlete? A 40 plus. Right. And so what that's really aimed at is the person who's come back to sport after a period of time and your head's thinking, yeah, I can still throw a ball or jump or run the way I could when I was 20 years younger. Mm. Turns out you can't. Mm. But... In, when you're in the gym or doing exercise, actually practice the movements of that sport. So if you do cricket like I do, how many rotational type exercises am I, as, am I doing? Train your body for the uh, exertion the sport that you you're expecting apply. of your body. Jeez, that and again, it just makes sense. But, uh, you need someone as clever and um, experienced experience yeah. as, uh, as Jeremy to point yeah. that out. Yeah. And that... Simplifying a complex message is the trait of a, of a very, very special person. Well, we hoped you uh, can dig in and find part C, some extra special tips for those of us that are over 40. And we look forward to seeing you in the next episode, Nick. And that will be episode number 38. 38. And that will be some additional nutritional tips from the one and only Lucy Chen. Well, I'm excited about it. See you next week. See you, Doolanders.